Hello, my friends. This is life coach Mike Chargman, and welcome to an episode of Mike's Search for Meaning. I'm after some big questions. Why are we here? What makes a fulfilling life? How can we grow individually and collectively? Each episode, I'll dive deep with leaders who are doing great work in the world and see how they organize their life. Books read, value systems, resources used, and stories that show how each of you can create the life and the world of your dreams. On today's episode of Mike's Search for Meaning, I am joined by Aaron Finbloom. Aaron is a philosopher, artist, and pedagogue. He is the co-founder of the School of Making Thinking and the founder and director of the Deep Play Institute. His practice involves expanding transformative inquiry through games, performance art, and structured play. With training in circling, authentic relating, and psychodrama, he also facilitates experimental individual and group sessions inspired by these practices. Finbloom has presented works internationally at venues which include the Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago, Gallery 151 in New York. Please forgive my mispronunciation of this next one. It's Maschinenhaus Kulturberei in Berlin, UNAM in Mexico City, and Mainline Theater in Montreal. He holds a PhD in Interdisciplinary Humanities and Fine Arts from Concordia University in Montreal and is currently teaching philosophy at the City College of New York and the University of Portland. Additionally, I'll be donating to and raising awareness for the charity or organization of my guest choice with each and every episode. And in this episode, Aaron has presenced his own organization, the Deep Play Institute, for which I have donated to please join me in donating. The link, as always, is in the show notes. And a colleague of mine by the name of Andy Cahill has called Aaron a delightfully difficult person to pin down. And I hope that this conversation today with Aaron demonstrates that in the best of ways. Aaron is this beautiful, eclectic, hodgepodge mix of philosopher, artist, healer, thinker, And perhaps what I'm most drawn to about Aaron's work is the depths that he goes into in all of these different modalities and disciplines. So one of the things, as you'll see in the title of this episode, is that Aaron at one point asked himself 18,250 questions over the course of a year as a form of self-discovery and self-inquiry. And he learned so much about himself in asking what was 50 questions a day to himself that demonstrated kind of the different seasons that he was going through in his life and the way that transformation happens over the course of a year. And you'll hear in a lot of personal development and coaching spaces that the most profound transformation happens when you are asking questions and not when you arrive at answers. So it was really interesting to explore what that was like for him to ask himself 18,250 questions. We also talk about the level of import of, if you notice in his bio, psychodrama, and in The Body Keeps the Score, one of the chapters talks about the healing impact that theater can have. And one of the specific examples that we talk about in this conversation is, let's just say you had a really troubled relationship with your father and you identify as a male. In a psychodrama example, you might place a stand-in for your father to play your father, and you would maybe reenact a moment that you had in your life 
so that you can re-experience the moment from a different lens and have a, a healed relationship to what was maybe previously a, a traumatic incident that happened in your life. Aaron explains it much more eloquently than I did, but there's so much to be learned from all the different ways that Aaron looks at thinking and healing. And that's another thing that I really admire about his work is this blend of philosophy and, and how we think and how we engage in our mind with, say, morality and healing, but also with the deeper discovery that that happens in the body. And in his case, we, we explore this through things like deep play. Play is another thing that's super important and critical for us to be able to grow and to heal. So with all of that said, this was a truly delightful conversation with Aaron. Let's go ahead and settle in, take a deep breath, and enjoy this conversation with Aaron right now. Welcome to Mike's Search for Meaning, Aaron. Hello. It's good to be here. <laughs> I'm grateful to have you on. I, I was naming just before we jumped on here that I appreciated the way that you and Andy were in conversation together and just the way that you're able to look at reality from so many different angles. I'm, I'm excited to get into that with you. And I always start my interview in the same manner. I always ask, what was it like at your dinner table when you were growing up? Hmm. What a great question. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I, I, I'm, I grew up where dinner together was a norm and pretty much every single time was, you know, my mom and, uh, and or dad cooked dinner for me. So there was no TV. <laughs> it was, you know, either quiet or in conversation. And I think, you know, I definitely have memories of the the classic question, what did you do in school today? What did you learn in school today, Aaron? And then sort of begrudgingly, you know, only saying a little bit and then like trying, I guess, some memories of my mom, like drawing me out and yeah. But then I think I, I think, yeah, <laughs> it's funny. I haven't thought of it in a while. <clears throat> yeah. Memories also of just like wanting to leave to like go you know, watch TV or play a video game or just, you know, be alone or something. Mm -hmm. And how would you describe yourself as a child? Because I know that, <clears throat> I again, on Andy's podcast, I heard you speak to the way that you were always into the arts and performance. Mm -hmm. And also there was a component of just under, I guess, our psyche maybe, or just understanding what is thinking what is consciousness maybe you didn't have the words for that but i'd be curious to hear just how you would describe how that manifest as a child and if that was always something that was intriguing to you or maybe you came to it a little bit later in your life yeah i i was uh, diagnosed with adhd as a kid and i was uh, very very hyperactive <clears throat> very kind of like all over the place one could say so, yeah, I don't know if I'd describe myself as a thinker back then. I certainly was, I certainly was someone that was somewhat dreamy. I do have memories of me dreaming, imagining. I like to draw. It wasn't really that musical. Yeah, I, I, I really wanted to be a wizard. Mm. It's really inspired by like fantasy. 
Yeah, <clears throat> but it wasn't. I don't think it was until it, it was until like maybe middle school or high school that my sort of like both thinker and artist identities sort of came upon me. I, I do I do trace the origin story to at least the the think sort of thinker quality in me as a kind of argumentation that I would get into with my mom. <laughs> mm-hmm. So that's maybe that's that origin story. But in terms of me as being an artist, it's a little murkier. Well, I would love to hear the, I, I guess, artist is murkier, but where did thinker start to come online for you? Like, it, I guess arguments with your mom was one way, but it seems like over time, it, it, I mean, it, it definitely has evolved into something that you're spending a lot of time on. So yeah, yeah. when did that start to develop for you? Yeah, I was definitely in middle school and high school. I remember reading my first like philosophy text in some class and then starting some philosophy club and then reading Sophie's World, which is a really good like intro text for like teenagers. And then sort of right around the same time, I, I was I was becoming uh, and, and sort of my identity as one who's maybe like more provocative was was coming about. That actually has, I think, yeah, maybe even a a longer back origin story. I think I, I was, there was elements of me as being kind of like a class clown, sort of provocateur, like the kind of person that would kind of poke at authority. I think I was like that even maybe from a young age. And it, it just sort of exacerbated in, in middle school and high school. I was, you know, one of my favorite stories. Well, there's a few really good ones. One, we used to have this like lounge as as the seniors in the school what used to, in our high school used to have a lounge and we moved buildings and didn't have this lounge anymore and we were like upset and i remember bringing a couch an old discarded couch from my home in the middle of some break that we had and just moving it into our like where our lockers were and declaring victory we once had a we now have a lounge again freedom and <laughs> and like everyone was celebrating and jumping on the couch and then the administration like came in within 5 minutes and removed it and so yeah, I, I, this this role as as provocative, sort of pushing up against norms, has been there for a while, and I think philosophy for me has been one, and 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 being an artist have been both identities that really encourage that kind of pushing up against norms. Mm-hmm. How yeah. do you look at the? If you look from today's lens, how do you look at the blend or the intersection of? I, I think that there's a I don't know if it's a misconception, but there's definitely a notion and a belief that philosophy and art are very distinctly separate, don't mm-hmm. really mix well together. And yeah. I'd yeah. be curious to hear how you would talk about the way that either you look at them or the way that you personally weave them together as. Oh, yeah. This is a very classic yeah. question. Yeah, I could, I could, we could talk a lot about this and something I've been researching and thinking about for a while. So, yeah, because I, you know, I, I'm a musician, I'm a performance artist. I've been doing that for many, many years. I'm a thinker, I'm a philosopher, somewhat of an academic doing that for many, many, many years. And what I find is that in these, in this sort of like places where these two things come together, there's a few things that happen. One, and this was kind of like my grad school program I did. Usually what happens is philosophy like engulfs (laughs) or eats art. And what I mean is, what I mean by that is it's usually a place where we we think about 
what the art object is. We're like, let's, let's, you know, let's experience art for a moment, maybe like look at a painting, hear a piece of music, and then talk about it, try to understand it, use words to try to discern the meaning of this art piece. So that's, that's typically my experience. Rare, there's also this other sort of rare thing that happens on the other side where art sort of tries to just think, you know, you'll have a painting and the painting will be like, ah, oh, this is, this is like the meaning of, of the last 200 years of human society. Like, just look at this painting. It'll, it'll give you that meaning. Right. So in, in that sense, they're not really converse. They're not really having a conversation for me. There's this, there's these very like clear polarities that happen where, you know, one medium sort of engulfs the other and doesn't really rest in that tension between them. For me, the most interesting place within this tension has everything to do with the word. And that's, that's, that's the place that I just don't see philosophy actually engaging. It's, it's the most important place, I think, because there's this implicit assumption within philosophy, and it's very implicit, that words carry a kind of denotative meaning irrespective of context, irrespective of intonation, irrespective of place, irrespective of what your body is doing. That's a very old implicit assumption that goes way back in Western, in Western culture. And I think when we begin to unravel that assumption, we, we notice, oh, wow, we're just writing papers. Oh, wow, we, we're just speaking in monotone at, at some lecture, you know, and it, it's, it's in that unraveling of that assumption that we get to really interesting theater and, and performance. That, that for me is the place where the two really can really meet is when you think about what, what theater can do, because that's, I think if you, if you go so far as to not have the word anymore, you can't be in philosophy. You need, you need to have the word. That's just, I think you're just losing what that discipline is if you're outside of the word. But the question is, how is the word spoken? What is our body doing when that word is spoken? What context are we in? What's the relationship to the audience? All of that can be brought in to philosophy. And now we have a really interesting tension between, between the two mediums. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I would love to talk a little bit more or a lot of it more even just about theater and, and examples of how you bring more color to the word right because what i'm what i'm hearing is that maybe philosophy in the classic and older outdated sense of the word it just looked at the word as a black and white kind of two-dimensional it it has in and of itself there's there's nothing about intonation or body language it just that this is a word this is what the word means and that is the only thing that we're really worried about in philosophy yeah. whereas theater it I, in my estimation would take almost the exact opposite approach where you could take any word and make it in the way that you say it 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 can carry lots of meaning yeah. Right. So yeah. I, I guess I would be I would love to just hear you maybe riff on that or talk about ways that it could be gamified ways that you have brought words to life. But yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll say it's not just theater, also like music, 
other visual arts can sort of incorporate the word and and also image. So there's there is a wider sort of tapestry of of, of art forms that can do this. But and I'll also say that for me, this is also why I've, I've been getting much more into transformative healing practices because those are very much practices that use the transformative power of words, but use it in a way with that's very, very, very cognizant of, of bodies and context and intonation and emotion, et cetera, et cetera. And I'll also say that this isn't really, I don't see this as being an outdated version of philosophy. I see this as being completely dominant in how philosophy is taught and not just philosophy. I would say any academic discipline, sciences are a bit different, but at least within the humanities, I would say this is absolutely still the standard and is not really questioned at all. I mean, very, very few people are, are sort of actively um, engaged in this kind of questioning. But so to more directly answer your question, though, the the piece of art that most deeply inspired me and I love telling the story of, and one of my favorite artists is uh, Tino Segal. And he performed this piece i think it was 2010 at the guggenheim it's called this progress do you know this this work do you know this artist no yeah so what he did was you'd walk into the guggenheim and you'd sort of start walking up to the rotunda and there was no art in the walls you just walk up and there's no art walking up and then a small kid comes up to you like seven eight nine year old kid comes up to you and says hi my name is whatever their name is and then do you want to take part in a piece by Tina Segal? So you start walking with this like eight-year-old kid and they ask you, what's progress? And so you're just, no, and you have to like walk with this, this kid and talk, tell them what, what progress is. And then after about five minutes of walking, you are sort of confronted with a teenager. And then this little eight-year-old kid sort of recounts to the teenager everything that you said progress was about. Like that, it's like, wow, you're amazed at how they were able to sort of bullet point discern exactly what you know what you you thought progress was now you're now they leave and you're walking with this teenager having a conversation walking around the rotunda walking up and then, then at some point an adult juts into the conversation the teenager leaves you're walking with this adult i think they give some sort of quote or some passage very briefly and then you're just having this organic conversation and then at the end a much older person you know 50s 60s comes up and Behind the scenes, because I talked to some of the people that, that did this, the child, right when you left, the child was actually talking with this, you know, person of 50, 60, 70 years old, was talking with them, telling that person what you believe progress is so they can then fashion a story about their life that relates to your definition of progress. And then so at the very end, you hear that story and then you keep walking and talking with them and then the piece ends. They announce the name of the piece. This is This Progress by Tino Segal. And so for me, I was like, oh, my God, this person, this artist has just created a score, a structure for a conversation, for an intellectual, for a philosophical conversation and has woven in the, the bodies like the it's kind of I, I've written about this. But yeah, this sort of ages progress. You're progressing upwards. You're looking at, you know, the barren walls in this museum like the context, the place, the bodies, the intonations, all were sort of meticulously crafted to, to move as the conversation moves. And so for me, it was like, oh my God, wow. And this inspired like all kinds of like art and conversation structures and scores that I've, that I've sort of crafted in the, in the, I would say 10 years after seeing that piece. 
Mm, that's a powerful story. So thank you for sharing that. And it actually leads me to something that I wanted to ask you. I, I was wondering, how am I going to weave this in here? And I think now is a, a good time. Mm. So what what is progress is a, a powerful question. I'm guessing that you in some way or another have asked yourself that. And there was a year that you asked yourself 50 questions per day. Oh, yes. You asked yourself 18,250 questions. So that was the 50 questions 365 times. Yes. Could you just describe what precipitated that? Maybe what insights you got from it or any any way that you feel compelled to share about what that was like? Yeah, I'm, I'm tempted. I know there's just a, a video here, but I'm tempted to just hold up a, a copy of the the text. I, I kind of want to make more of these. Yeah. What precipitated it? So I was in a, it was, I think it was 2016. Uh, yeah, June 2016, I, I began and then it ended June 2017. And during that time, I was in a relationship, a very, one of those like new and exciting and deep relationships that are extremely intense and somewhat volatile and, you know, but so meaningful and important, but also challenging, you know, I was in one of those. And yeah, I, I sort of started this practice as a means of maybe coping or digesting some facets of that relationship. And I really, I, I've always been into ritual. It's something that I think goes <clears throat> hand in hand with my upbringing. And I, I grew up Jewish and ritual is a formative part of, and, and such an important aspect of Judaism. So yeah, I think I've, I've always held a special place um, for ritual in my heart and this sort of intensity of having this practice of like, yeah, I'm going to ask 50 questions a day. I've also always loved questions. So yeah, it just seemed, it seemed what a natural thing to do. I didn't think I was going to do it for a year to begin with. And, but after a few months, I was like, okay, can we keep going? And yeah, it was, it was, it's such a, it, it was a, it was really nice just to do that, to have that kind of structure for one's day. I did have a few rules for the practice. I had to do it all in one sitting. I couldn't ask a question twice within one day. So I couldn't just say like, why, 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 why? <laughs> um, <laughs> and yeah, the questions had to be somewhat like thoughtful. I had to like actually think about it. Oh, and I, I, I didn't mention anyone's name. Any, there were no like proper names in it. That was an important thing for me to give it a kind of more, slightly more general or somewhat, uni not universal, but semi-universal import. I didn't want to just be about me. Yeah. And then, and then sort of maybe nine months through, I was like, wow, I'm going to go for a year. And then I'm like, wow, I should actually perform. I should read aloud all these questions. And I, I did that a year in, uh, after a year, I, I sort of made a book of them and then read them all aloud in one, in one sitting. And it was in that setting that I think the, some of the learnings came up, came about, I would say when, when reading them aloud, because I was, I was able to see how I was in different periods of my life in, the, in that, in that past year. I, I at, at times I grew tired of myself. Mm -hmm. At times I was like, Oh my God, Aaron, you're asking the same questions again, September, October, November, the same question. I was like, Oh, I can't read any more questions about love. I just can't, you know? And yeah. And then, and then at other times I was like, wow, what a surprising, interesting question. Wow. You know, and like, oh, so I think it gave me a sense of like the movements, the cycle of a year, the sort of to, mm -hmm. to be able to step back 
and in one day see how one's sort of psyche and mind and heart move throughout the, throughout an entire year gives one a kind of rare insight, a rare ability to step back and see oneself. Mm. Yeah. How long did it take to perform 18,250? Oh, yeah. It took about 20 hours. Yeah. <laughs> 21 hours about. Yeah, I, I was very concerned that my voice wouldn't last, but it did. I think at some points I was like singing some of the questions and like humming them. And yeah, I think I... I <laughs> My voice was hurting by the end. Yeah, <laughs> were there were there other people in attendance? Yes, yes, it was some virtual and some. It was in a gallery space in Montreal, so yeah, there were there were physical people that came as well, wheeled uh, bodies in the room. But um, I don't think anyone was there the entire time. I think it was only myself. Yeah. No, no lunch break for you. Like, did you fast that day? Oh, I did. I I took breaks. Yeah, I Got would it. take breaks in between every month. I would take a break. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. So after reading all of August, I'd take like a little five or 10 minute break after reading all of September. Yeah. Got it. <clears throat> yeah. Well, one of the things I admire most about your work is it, we've already kind of danced around this a little bit, but I, I would love to really focus on the the practical ways that you apply, I guess, sentence stemming and sentence structure and, and the ways that you gamify it and and look at like how how can we relate to each other? There's there's implicit rules in the way that we relate to each other. Mm-hmm. And how can just by I guess we could just start by what are some of the implicit rules of conversation that you most enjoy deconstructing before before we jump too far ahead? Mm. Yeah, thank you for for sort of uh looking at this this frame or this uh <clears throat> This way of this way of looking at things, yeah. I, I really, I just, I just want to speak to that for a moment. I I really love conversations about rules. <laughs> mm-hmm. I love them. So many people are really resistant to rules, and I, it confuses me because I think what they're really saying is they're resistant to explicit rules because rules are everywhere. They're just implicit. But people just have a, a lot of resistance to explicit rules. But I think, yeah, it's it's interesting because I think one one of the great things about explicit rules is that if you're just guided by implicit rules all the time, then you actually have a greater tendency to just get locked into patterns. This is there's a lot of art practices that recognize this. I think John Cage, some of the fluxists, some of the situationists. Yeah, recognizing that actual, like just following impulse or, or sort of, yeah, just I'll just say just following impulse or spontaneity actually can lead to formulaic repetition and not actually breaking out of a box. So freedom actually can be quite limiting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Nietzsche talks about this as well. So yeah, I think it's really important in conversation as well to either follow rules at times, or look at what those rules are that you, that you're implicitly following. So yeah, some of those um, within conversation, I mean, the biggest, the biggest ones I would say are just like sort of niceties, sort of like formal niceties like, hi, how are you doing? Oh, I'm good. Yeah. How are you? I'm fine. You know, those sorts of like beginnings A really, a really big one actually that's 
completely implicit within, I would say, most casual conversation is that when someone asks you a question, you're going to answer it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, There's a few conversation practices that I love, like circling and authentic relating, that you don't have to do that at all, actually. Um, You just, someone can ask a question and there can be just silence after it. Um, Yeah, that's just a few. Mm. A part of me wants to go right into circling and authentic relating and just because those are relatively novel to me. They're, they're two modalities that I am very lightly familiar with. And mm-hmm. a, a part of me wants to maybe just, I'll put a pin in that for now. And I want to keep deconstructing some of the implicit rules and, and ways uh-huh. that you, that you play with them. So yeah. Yeah. So one of them is just the way that we check in a lot of times is, Hey, how are you? Good. How are you? There's there's not actual relating for the most part happening there. Right. It's just like a back and forth uh, unconsciously, if you will. And I never thought of it that way, that when a question is asked, although you and I were both raised Jewish and I think one of the tropes about Jews is that we answer questions with With another question. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, I guess I'll ask, are there any other ones that come to mind, the implicit rules? And if not, then what are some ways that you, whether it's at Deep Play Institute or in any other way, what are some ways that you like to play with the rules? And like, what what's even possible once we do that? Like, why, why does that, why is that something that you're so interested in? Yeah, I just, I, yeah, none, none are immediately coming to mind. I think there's, you know, there's a lot of, and it's really interesting. I've, at a lot of the workshops I do, we sort of play this game where we'll have two people talking and then we'll have a circle of people around them, either like writing on note cards, the implicit rules that people are following, you know, the sort of subtext, sort of like writing in or speaking aloud some of the subtext that's there. And, you know, it, it, typically it's, I would say probably 80% of the time in conversation, there, you know, there's, there's subtext that's actually like something that's sort of more vulnerable or you're shy or embarrassed to speak aloud. And you say something, you create levity, you make a joke, you know, as a means of like <clears throat> covering up or that, that sort of that, that, that tenderness that's there, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think most of the, the implicit rules we follow probably have something to do with that. <laughs> uh-huh. Like, like, you know, creating some sort of mask or, or, you know, protective layer against that, which is uh, more tender and vulnerable. But I also want to say, I want to like um, give credit where it's due. I I think the frame maybe is somewhat unique. I don't, I don't even know that to, to sort of say that like, Oh, there's all these implicit rules and these there's ways of playing with them. But I, I would say like every, I would say the vast majority of like religious conversation practices and, and, all the sort of wisdom traditions of, you know, their, their own conversation practices or have been doing this for, you know, for thousands and thousands of years in, in many different cultures, you know, I'm, I'm more familiar with, with Western and, and I would say Eastern examples, but yeah, I just like meditate, a meditation retreat's a good one, right? Like we're, you know, there's, you're not talking. <laughs> that's, that's a pretty big way to just get rid of all the implicit rules to not say anything. I mean, there's brief bouts of, of speech and, you know, Quaker meetings are one that I think a lot about where, you know, there's quiet and then you just like when moved to speak, 
you speak aloud something. So I do think that the whole beauty and, and the amazingness of, of practices, of conversation practices that are sort of deeply embedded in spiritual and religious traditions is that they do exactly this. They create a different culture of speech that breaks, that forces us to break from these implicit sort of formulaic ways of, of, of speaking and being. Mm. Yeah. Is there is there a wisdom tradition that you're most connected with that, that gets at the heart of this in the way that you just named? I don't know, actually. I, I, the first part of your question, yes, I'm getting much more into Buddhism, but I haven't, I'm, I'm not sure how in Buddhism does this directly. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. To think about that. Well, I, I think we can go back to where, and unless something else comes up for you, then feel free to interrupt me. But yeah, the, I guess there's a, there's a couple of dots that I'm wanting to connect. And, and one of them is just around modalities that you have found helpful in. So there's like, we've, we've started to look at what are the rules that we play by in conversation and, and maybe even like what gets in the way of us saying what we might otherwise want to be saying, like if we were in tune with what we wanted to say, what would we say? Hmm. Yeah, I guess we could go there or we could look at, I, I am curious to hear about circling and authentic relating and, and how those as modalities have helped whether it's you or people you work with or just in general, like ways that you look at those as opening for us possibility that we're probably not seeing if we just go into kind of more rote conditioned patterns around tendency, uh, around uh, conversation. Mm. Yeah, I can, I can speak a bit to, to circling. It's interesting because, you know, and this is maybe like the, the sort of like Nietzsche, Foucault in me that's, that's speaking. But I, I think that like we can't get away from like sort of cultural bias, biases and like values. And I, I do think that like every, with, within every conversation practice, there uh, are, are certain values that are being held up you know that that we could just see that we're you know even even like and sometimes we don't even see this but like awareness mm-hmm. is, a, is a pretty big one lack of rigid hierarchy you know uh you know I, freedom of expression right yeah i just i i'm really love seeing and this is this is i guess also the philosopher in me just like endlessly <laughs> trying to uncover what these implicit assumptions are because i think it's really it's always important to see them so yeah and you know those are there within any practice so within within circling i would say circling is one of of many like here and now practices within a group that i that i just think are so so powerful there's you know group therapy is another one i think back in the 60s there was a thing called t groups that were doing something similar it was in the 70s Group relations conferences, another one. There's a few different practices that that do this kind of here and now work. And what what I mean by that is you're basically sitting in a circle, or <clears throat> in some formation with with humans <laughs> together. And the the main thing you're doing is just noticing what is coming up in the room in relation to each other as it's happening, right? And trying to just keep being aware of that keep 
it's almost like meditation, right? You keep just like refocusing on what's happening in the room, what's happening, what's happening. And, you know, that to be a little bit more specific, it's, you know, it's a lot about sharing impact. So it's like, if someone says something that's really like, you know, heated and, you know, intense, instead of immediately coming back and saying, you're wrong to just notice to like, you notice a feeling in you saying like, wow, I, I'm noticing like, really like, anger rising up in me right so mm-hmm. it, that's and that's particular to circling not all here and now practices work that way but the, within circling the idea is to, to always try to sort of own one's experience it's rooted in nonviolent communication so we're trying to just really tap into what you are feeling mm-hmm. what's going on in your inner landscape in relation to everyone that's around you and it's it's pretty magical, I'd say, to, to watch this happening. It's a, There's a lot of insight that happens, a lot of sort of like, you can just sort of watch the, the movement of attention throughout. I mean, it's usually like 40, 60 minutes. You can watch attention just sort of moving from one place in the circle to the next. You can discern like different power dynamics that are coming up, different desires in the room, different like segments of a group that are wanting that are wanting one thing and other segments of the group that are wanting other things so it's it really is it, it's sort of like in the times that i was getting into it it's like wow i didn't know like all this was was happening and we can see all of this like this juicy information that's there like beneath the surface of all group interactions mm. Yeah, it seems like the the sentence stem I'm noticing or I'm having the feeling or I'm having the thought or any anything that it's a sort of a, a detachment, not a detachment, but like a, a, you're not identifying so strongly with your initial reaction. There's mm-hmm. it, cre- it seems like it just creates space for whatever is present to unfold more organically than what we otherwise might give enough life to in an everyday conversation, which I, I know is very, especially in professional and work settings, there's a lot of, a lot of times there's a lot of demand for like, let's in the moment, like what is, what's your response? What's the, uh, what's your answer to this challenge? And there isn't really an organic unfolding that's allowed to emerge. And it seems like circling is one of several practices that could be really helpful in, hey, we there's nowhere we're trying to go here other than just share what, what is happening within you right now. And, yeah. uh, and you know, what, what I'm hearing is when that happens, then there's all sorts of things are revealed that might not otherwise surface as easily. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's another part that's unique to circling. This other practice that I've done a little bit of, it's called group relations or group relations conferences they have a little bit more of an explicit aim or purpose to um, investigate power power relations. A pretty broad uh, aim or purpose, but still, yeah. But you're right. It's 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 quite. I, I, it really does remind me of medit- I mean, people that do circling yeah. describe it as a relational meditation. It does remind me of of many meditation traditions that I love so much that are sort of not rooted in purpose or at least have a more complex relation to purpose where you know maybe a purpose arises imminently within the thing itself but an emergent sort of purpose will will come about but there's no sort of ultimate purpose to this Mm. 
Is, yeah. is that the way you look at what you do at Deep Play Institute is essentially you, or I guess I don't, I don't want to jump to any sort of projection or conclusion on my own. Like, how would you describe what you're doing at Deep Play Institute? <clears throat> yeah. Um, so our, our mission statement is playing with life's biggest questions through transformative play. So, and a lot of those big questions, I think are, you know, the questions that sort of are underneath the surface of this conversation, right? Questions of who, who are, who am I, who are we in, in the society? Who are we amongst each other? How do I change when I'm with another person? I, I would say they're pretty deep <clears throat> metaphysical and ontological questions. Like what are the boundaries of self and other? Um, and, you know, these are questions that many different therapeutic traditions investigate. And that's, I think that's why so much of what we're doing is informed by therapeutic practices and, and a lot of our practices do this as well. Mm -hmm. So I'd say the way, like maybe the, what makes DPI a bit unique, that's the acronym DPI, mm -hmm. Deep Play Institute. What, what makes it a bit unique, I think, and maybe there's other places doing this in the world is I, I, I believe that a lot is lost much can be gained, but a lot is lost by, by disciplinary sort of rigidity. And, you know, you can go to a lot of places to practice circling, a lot of places to practice group relations or to learn psychoanalysis or to learn IFS or, you know, to learn these practices. But what's lost, and this is for me, like the most, one of the most beautiful things and most interesting creative things. What's lost is the, is the playful it's it's this frame it's this frame that that thinks of every individual every human as potentially an artist as potentially a conductor as a creator a creator of what a creator of techniques and practices so all of these practices that we look at were created by individual an individual or a group of individuals and these individuals you know sort of morphed, they tried things out, they played with some techniques, they played with in different embodied positions and certain words that are spoken and then formed these, these techniques were doing some interesting things and they cohesed them together around this set of like guidelines and prescriptions and instructions and then poof, like a practice emerges, right? Mm -hmm. That's great. And I think many people can can be helped by, you know, this kind of disciplinary rigidity of like, let's follow these rules. Let's only do these techniques in this way and this way and this way. I don't I don't have a, a, a sort of fundamental problem with that. My problem is that there's not places in this world that, again, approach all individuals as having this creative capacity to play with these techniques to like just sort of erode the edges a bit between practices and to view to have this sort of larger definition of play where we are not only playing with not only playing with a technique you know we're playing with how to even combine techniques or how to even create a structure create a create a, a game that could you know have have these techniques and I'll, I'll give an example i think it will be helpful yeah so one of the practices that we're very inspired by at, at DPI is uh, our practices that work with parts. 
So internal family systems is one, right? And yeah, it's this, it's a, this idea that beneath, uh, within an, an individual are different parts. There's an inner critic, you have an inner artist, you have uh, you know a manager, you have maybe some exile parts that are really sort of scared and and so you know IFS is a is a technique that uh, for for discovering this sort of inner landscape of of parts and sort of helping helping them out and resourcing them and it's a, it's a wonderful practice. So what what we did a few times is we've created these very playful structures where. I'll just name maybe one or two of them, where people will arrive into the structure, into the meeting, into the workshop, into the group that lasts a few months. They'll arrive with one of these parts that they want to sort of play with. And so they'll actually like put on a persona. Oh, I'm going to be my inner critic today. And they'll arrive into the workshop as their inner critic and like, oh, grumpy. And, and maybe someone else is arriving into the workshop with their you know, their inner lover, I'm like, oh, I love you, critic, you know, and so there are these personas that we're playing, and we and we'll create this fiction, we'll create a, a LARP is one of the meta structures are really interested in live action role play. Mm-hmm. We'll create like this whole game of like, you know, we did one this summer where you're arriving, and you've been chirogenically frozen for 60 years, and you're just waking up. So we use we use these sort of meta frames, these meta play frames where everything we're doing is sort of folded into the play. And all of the, the structures that we're working with are sort of these collections of, of techniques and practices. And yeah, I find that by, by doing that, it really, again, holds up this, this worldview that I, that I value so much, which is this worldview that we are all artists, that, that, that there's no, we don't need to be, at least for, for a moment, we don't need to be so careful with stepping on the toes of a discipline or stepping on the toes of a practice. We can sort of throw around these techniques and, and sort of creatively weave them together as both facilitator and participant. Yeah. Have you ever heard of and or read the book Impro? Oh, I don't know, actually. I don't. Maybe I haven't, yeah. Well, I, I read it several years ago, and it's ostensibly a book about improv classes and, and how to have a successful back and forth in an improv class. But to me, it's really about the ways that we limit ourselves when we're relating to others. And and one of the examples in the book was there was a, a classroom that I think was split between eight-year-olds and 50-year-olds, and, and they were tasked with doing a, a creative project. And the... I think every single to a T, all of the eight-year-olds had more kind of creative autonomy that they were able to more successfully deliver on whatever the project was than any of the 50-year-olds because they didn't feel eight-year-olds aren't confined by all the different implicit rules that we might be following. And, And one of the things that I'm hearing in your response is that while a lot of rigid modalities can be really helpful frameworks. One of the things that Deep Play Institute does is it says like, what would it look like if we put internal family systems, this therapeutic modality and smash it together with this other therapeutic modality? Like, what would it be like to explore the edges of that? And 
I imagine what's possible is you realize, oh, like these things that I have taken as truths, we can we can push them a little bit. We can and and the things that we've accepted as truths also, if we go back in time, these were also just ideas that another human created at an, another point in time. Yeah. And so there's a, there's a very meta like all of this is was created at some point and you have that intelligence within you that it that seems like it emerges when you start to identify the rules say what if we played with this rule and then experiment with them it it sounds incredible thank you yeah yeah it it's funny because it, it makes me also just think about i think in in many therapeutic traditions one of the thing that the therapist sort of hopes to get the client to be able to do is to kind of be your own therapist, mm-hmm. you know, like a therapist hopes like through the years to be a little bit more hands off and have the client be able to do sort of more of their own healing on their own. And uh, just what that makes me think of is like, I think different practices work differently for people. I, I see this, you know, I, I see clients and some, some clients that I see are, extremely visually like they just work visually they're just like they close their eyes and it's just like this whole inner world of, of you know visions emerges others are just more movement based they're like wanting to move and they express it through movement and you know there's there's certain practices or techniques that are i think can work better with another person and it doesn't mean we can't cultivate things we're not good at but i do think that part of what works well with, I think, these implicit assumptions or these, these, this framework we're talking about where everyone's their own sort of artist is that there is some truth to this ability that everyone has to kind of carve out their own, their own methods. You know, no, no method is going to work perfectly for, for a single person throughout one's entire life path. I think we have to be like open to like taking a bit from here, a bit from there. Yeah. Yeah, well, it, it definitely seems like one of the ways that we limit ourselves is that if something is really popular and works for a lot of people, and then we, in some way, try and adopt that modality or, or that thing that's working for other people, the dogma can be very dangerous there, where then it leads to a kind of inner shame about like, well, what does that mean about me if it's working for everyone else? Like, yeah. It, seems, it runs rampant in in many different in diet culture, right? There's people that are very dogmatic about paleo or ketogenic or vegan, vegetarian, where mm-hmm. if it works for you, that it's it just seems like a human tendency to want to say like you got to do this thing's working for me, you got to do it. And yeah. it's just very yeah. limiting. It, it applies in many ways. I know. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I, I for for forever. <laughs> One of the things that I've had the most upsetness towards is is dogma, rigid, rigid, rigid dogma. In the past year, even the past few months, I'm trying to like question that a bit more. I, I, I really, I think as, a, as an individual, not just for myself, I think it's important for everyone to, to view the things that one regards as the most challenging and difficult perhaps even the most atrocious things and to see if there is some kind of learning that those mm-hmm. things can, can offer. So to, to give an example, I think uh, with dogma, even I would say that the thing that the, the dogmatist has that I, that I don't have actually, that is, that is something I could actually really learn to cultivate 
is a kind of deep-seated spiritual conviction. They know, the dogmatist knows 100% this is right. It's so foreign to me, you know, as, as again, growing up Jewish and being the skeptical, philosophical person, always seeding things with doubt and questions. I, yeah, I, I don't have that. And it's, it's interesting. It's interesting to like, think of that as a, as something that can be actually quite powerful if used correctly. Yeah. Is that a, have you come up with an example where that like, I'm hearing maybe that if you were absolutely dogmatic and, and certain about there, maybe there's something that you're wanting to stand more powerfully in, like that, you know, is deeply true within Mm. you. Is is there something there around where you would want to consciously be dogmatic? It's a great question. Yeah, I, I only have some guesses. I think, yeah, and they, they're all like these sort of more meta values or meta frames. And I, I think one of them is like openness and growth. It seems a bit bizarre to be dogmatic about that, but I, I do <laughs> I think that might that might be it. That might be, you know, I might have a very deep, firm conviction that there is, you know, always you know, some, some where to grow, some place to open, some place to, to soften, to like, you know, lean into some kind of openness. That's very rough, but yeah, it's, it's very new to me, this, this kind of conviction. So maybe in a few months I'll have a better answer. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's definitely a, a big question and it, it's inviting me to be maybe reflective of how would I say this? I, I did a course recently that focused on my relationship with money and the different qualities that I project onto money. So one example for me might be someone that is a billionaire is fill in the blank. What, how would I describe them? I would probably say capitalist pig, greedy, selfish. Mm-hmm. And so what, maybe what, I, what I'm hearing in the way that you say, well, what what's great about being dogmatic, I I would ask myself some version of like, what's great about being greedy? Like, what if I owned parts of me that were greedy? How could that be used for good? And yeah. I actually, I don't have as hard a time. There's some like bigot came up one time and I, I really had a tough time wrapping my mind about what's great about being a bigot or being mm. racist or something. Yeah. But, but being greedy, I could get on board with, well, if, greed was put in the right hands you could really do some good in the world right like with all the the resources that would be made available if you were to wield that power for good instead of for growth for growth's sake or putting us on some other planet i think that maybe i'd be onto something there so i think it's just it is an interesting practice to just question things generally even if even if you don't have any insight that comes from it it seems like a, a very inherently rewarding process to be, huh, this thing that I've accepted as absolutely true. What if I, uh, what if I just questioned it even a little bit? Yeah, I, I have to, I have to say some things in response to this because yeah. Yeah, it's, it's super interesting to me. It's something I've been thinking a lot about. So in, in the past month, I did this training, this intensive at the process work Institute. It's in a modality called process work. It was uh, invented uh, it's a practice sort of invented by um, Arnie Mindell in like the 70s. 
And it's it has Jungian and Taoist roots. It's a very somatic-based practice. And one of the sort of fundamental beliefs of this practice is very much, it's a very much like an awareness practice. It doesn't have that many sort of fundamental rigid beliefs that it believes in. But one of them is sort of integration and wholeness. And it believes wherever there's a system uh, in oneself, in a relationship, in a culture, in the entire world, in a society, in one's body, all, all things that we observe are sort of things that are, in a sense, kind of striving towards integration. And if they're not integrating, then they're just going to be polarized. And the idea is that through awareness, we can actually achieve a kind of integration. So in process work, and, and it's not just this modality, I think certain religions, I believe Taoism, maybe other, maybe Jungian psychology views this as well. Like anything we're observing, even things that are atrocious like and horrible, have something beneath them. If we look, if we can sort of like look what's beneath the surface, we're going to find some, some, not only some positive import, but something that's actually necessary for the system wow. to, to, to exist. Right. And so again, it's not justifying the abuser, the racist. I mean, we, both this practice and, and people that practice it would say, no, 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 we don't, we don't, we're not glorifying racism. We're not saying we need more racists, but it, it's saying that, Again, the, the the whole point is not looking at the surface. On the surface of things, there's actually, you know, violence that needs to be stopped. And, you know, we have to, like, have laws and systems that do this. But beneath the surface, there's actually some kind of energy, some sort of, and it usually has to do with power and force. There's something there that actually is in need of the other person. So to give a, I won't go into details here, but one of the facilitators we work with works with abuse, you know, people that have been abused somewhat violently throughout their lives. And typically what it is, it's for the person who has been abused, discovering within the abuser, the kind of power that the abuser had and owning that power Mm -hmm. is actually one of the most incredible means towards healing. And that's a kind of integration. It's integrating the power of the abuser into the abused Mm. yeah that's beautiful and and so i just want to echo back so that i understand correctly is that it's in some way the the abuse would probably their whole life thought that the power only they they were powerless right Mm -hmm. and that all the power was in the perpetrator and what they projected into the abuser they said oh i i have that within me too Exactly. Not the, and not the capacity to like, I'm going to go kill someone, but like I have power to be a choice in my life. Yeah. And sometimes, sometimes within the work and process work or in other of these modalities, not just process work that does this, you, you sort of go back to that original event and you actually have that power as a defense. You know, you sort of you, through like kind of like artistic embodied visual sort of way of going back there. You actually can. Yeah actually change that memory and be defensive and this works both ways as the abuser there's a need to actually deepen into vulnerability mm-hmm. into that part of you that's weak and vulnerable and unable to do anything mm-hmm. so both sides of the system have something to learn from the other mm. have you ever worked this is a very random question but it came up for me have you ever worked in like with inmates or in any sort of capacity with people who have been imprisoned before 
No, no, I haven't. But there's this, uh, maybe you know about this documentary. Um, I think it's called The Work. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You've seen it. Yeah. I have. Yeah, yeah. it's so powerful. Yeah. I'm not opposed to it. Yeah, I'd also really like to work with kids. And I haven't, been, I haven't, well, I've done that, but not with therapeutic uh, work. Yeah. Well, one of, one of the things that happens in the work that it sounds like you would be very well equipped to do is that let's just, uh, I'll take a generic example from the documentary is one of the inmates who committed a, a heinous crime, right? Like it was a murder or something that was close to that level of just the terrible, terribleness. I can't, can't come up with the words right now, but uh, what they would do is eventually, if the anger was bubbling up in them, they would kind of circle around the person that was experiencing the anger and it would almost invariably, it would be like the father that didn't give them enough attention when they were little. And it would be, okay, who in this circle right now is the best stand in for your father? And mm -hmm. someone would emerge as, okay, we're going to pretend that this person here is your father. And wow, like what's possible to allow to move through you if you are able to recreate a scene that has that much charge for you? is mm -hmm. it's really miraculous and it's uh, you know society has a lot of stories about what it means to be someone who would ever commit the, the atrocity of murder but the way that these men would break down after they actually let their emotion and vulnerability be expressed was incredibly humanizing like we're i think underneath yeah. everything we're all kind of we, we're made of the same material yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I love this example that you're giving and, you know, a, a practice that I've gotten into that's that's very much does this sort of thing as psychodrama. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting in those, it, at least in, in, in my training I did in psychodrama, if there are moments when you're actually casting someone as the abuser, you usually pick an object rather than have a person because you don't want to sort of have that person who actually maybe never abused anyone, you know, just sort of have this kind of really big sort of violent or anger sort of like put onto them even in, in this fictional container. So there are certain, like, I would say, safety rules here that I, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for naming that. Right. I, I I would also be curious to hear, hmm, like there's, it I, in the book, The Body Keeps the Score, which I, I'm not sure. Well, I'm listening to right now, actually. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So it talk, it does talk a lot about the, it's it's very grounded in like there's brain fMRI scans and like what's happening in someone's brain when they're experiencing trauma. And towards the back end of the book, there's all sorts of different healing modalities that are helpful for someone to process their trauma. And one of them is actually, I don't know if it's, psychodrama but it's definitely there's a theatrical component to it mm -hmm. and yeah i guess towards the back end here i would love to like we've kind of been talking a lot about different elements of your work but healing is something that seems very important to you and and psychodrama and performance and theater and yeah. how have how, how has that been healing in your own life or in spaces that you've showed up with other people like if, if there's any example that comes to mind yeah i i'm i'm going to answer a slightly adjacent question and then i can answer that one because it's something i've been thinking about so 
I, I think of myself a bit uh, uh, somewhat of, as like an autodidact or, or someone that like can never be satisfied with a single modality and somebody exploring so many of them. And it would, I, and there's negatives to that, but there's also positives. And one of them is that I think I'm beginning to sort of discern some of the, the, the threads that I think are tied that tie together many of the practices that I, that I deeply love. And I, and I think there's like three or four that I just want to name. Cause I think for me, these are like the core of, healing these these threats and so so one of them is expression or deepening deepening a kind of expression and this this can be maybe i'll just even name it deepening and it could be like taking an emotion and like expressing it bigger it could be seeing what emotion is there and feeling it more in your body a lot of meditation practices vipassana does that it could be seeing what kind of visual landscape there is there connected to an emotion it's a kind of deepening and through a particular expressive channel, we're sort of heightening and turning up the knob on, you know, of that feeling, right? So that's, that's one deepening. And so, sometimes that actually does a lot because we we cathartically release something through that. You know, I just did a breath work thing a few nights ago with, with, with a friend and that's very much that kind of practice, like big cathartic release of, of energy and emotion through, through expression. So sometimes just the expression can actually be very cathartic. So that's one. The second is distancing. Mm. I find that um, the ability to get, so this is almost like the opposite. Like one is like going deep into something. The other is actually being able to, to, to separate from it. IFS does this. Many other practices do this. A lot of meditation does this. It's about being able to, to notice the thought, to separate, to see the observer of the thought rather than being within the thought to see that, oh, I can, I'm this part, but that part isn't me, to unblend from a part. So it's this way of stepping back and getting a kind of insight just from stepping back from the thing, a kind of noticing and awareness, which can be incredibly insightful. So much like insight and learning and knowledge can come from that kind of stepping back. The third comes from, I, I guess it's sort of cheesy, but you know, whatever, uh, love and compassion, you know, is, 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 yeah, is a force that is uh, such a healing force. Right. And so not even with, with just the first two, I don't think we'd, we'd have full, full healing, right. There's, cause there's something about no, even just, if you just express the part and notice it, you still can be locked into this, into a very kind of, I don't know, destructive pattern or pattern that's, you know, that, that can be abusive or full of blame and shame. And I think it's by really connecting with this force of love or IFS calls it self energy and compassion. It's by connecting with that kind of force and sort of giving, uh, infusing that, giving that to one's parts or to someone else connecting with that force and, you know, can really be, be incredibly healing. So, yeah, I think that's, that's yeah for me that those are the three three things that have been incredibly healing for me i will say a, alongside there's like one that's like kind of rests next to that last one or maybe it's like maybe it is a, a fourth thing and this is kind of what i love about psychodrama and i think ifs other modalities do this the idea is that you can actually like re like you have creative agency to change like events that have occurred before yeah. so you know, like take this abusive situation you're in or a really horrible, like fight you got into it with a loved one. You can sort of 
rewind time, play out that scene and alter it, change it to typically what, if I was directing, like you're, you're hoping to like, again, change it such that you're connecting with love and compassion. So that's why it's tied to the third thing I said, but still there's, there's some sort of beautiful, playful, creative power in that, that like we have the ability either as an individual or a group or a society to, yeah, almost like retro, retroactively <laughs> rewrite the past. Yeah. Could you, could you share an example of when that happened for you? Because I, through internal family systems, through parts work, that has happened to me several times where something happened. It was, I felt it was wounding and I spent a lot of energy in the ensuing years and years and years trying to ensure that would never happen because of a, a narrative I had about the event as it happened. And going back in time and reconnecting with that that part, and may, maybe I can I could share a personal example if if mm. you yeah, this one was just came up for me recently that I I've done lots of work around this part, but I in sixth grade I was reading a story I was already a very shy, scared to make the first move type of kid and adolescent, and when so in, in sixth grade, I was reading in front of my class and the word, I mispronounced the word chic. I said chick. And mm -hmm. the most popular girl in my school was in that class and she started laughing at me and said, yeah, it wasn't even that mean, but I really internalized it as well, she thinks I'm a loser. As she thinks I'm a big failure. And she laughed and she corrected it. And it was, you know, the way that I interpreted it at that time is, it is not a good idea to stand in front of a classroom and be vulnerable because if you make a mistake and it's not okay to make mistakes, because if you do, then the people that you look up to, the people that are most popular are going to laugh at you. Mm -hmm. And I, I had no idea how much that was unconsciously driving a lot of my behavior in ways that it was exhausting the amount that I did not want to make a mistake or to be seen in a way that I might get someone's negative attention. And in internal family systems, which in itself is kind of an internal play of different characters. Yeah. Yeah. When I got in contact with that part for the first time and kind of just saw that part for who he was, which was a, a gentle, tender boy who just wanted to be approved of and say, you don't need to be more perfect. You don't need to not make mistakes. You're, you're okay. Just the way that you are, which is where love and compassion, there was the distancing that you named, but then also the love and compassion compared with it. When I said, you don't, there's really nothing that you need to change about yourself to be lovable. You're, you're good just the way that you are. It just, it opens up so much in me and it's it's something that i revisit very frequently because wounds don't in my experience they don't just go away magically they it, they kind of resurface from time to time with different things and there's there's different levels that we can get reactive or, or triggered by things but uh, yeah be, so that's kind of an internal theatrical healing that happened with me i i would love to hear if something comes to mind if there's been an actual in the physical reality, a demonstration where someone maybe replayed a, 
a scene from their life where there there was healing that was done on the other end of reenacting it or like a shift in the narrative yeah let me just think for a moment yeah the specifics aren't coming to mind but i will say there's been a few times that i've led psychodramas where someone feels but a lot of times in psychodrama we start with a person bringing in an ally which can be sort of a part of oneself, a friend or a loved one, or like some sort of divine force. And a lot of times when someone feels really lost or trapped in, in like, you know, the sort of past thing that they're, they're sort of going through or sort of within their own parts, they sort of step into this ally. And from that position of being in the ally, they offer some kind of support, kind of just like what you were saying, offer some kind of confidence. A lot of times, a lot of the examples I'm giving are like, they have an idea of what to do. They're like, someone will be stuck and not sure what to do. And this ally, they're sort of, you know, it's a friend, like, oh yeah, my friend, Rachel, whatever, they'll step in and be that. And then they'll like offer, oh, here's what, here's what you should do. You know, here's, here's what you should do in this moment. And yeah, it's a kind of like, it's just, it's so cool to me because this is sort of, um, this like secret behind like projection or behind like, you know, in, inside of us are the ways that we see every single person we we've ever known, you know? And so if we can just act that person, if we can just connect with the energy of someone that we've met or a loved one, who's able to like do incredible things, we can do that. Yeah. You know, that's, that's just kind of like magic or it's like, it's like a magic yeah. trick. Like, we we actually have that the thing that all whoever we know that's like oh my god i love this person they're so confident if you know them and you're in relation to them you have that confidence too just by being it's just a matter of connecting with it mm. that's a that's a beautiful example yeah like ch channeling the like what would fill in the blank do and and then really embodying it and and owning that's is another way that yeah like you said where we can claim it within ourselves the qualities that we've outcast onto other people yeah. which is beautiful and and theater does seem like a great avenue to because there's a maybe one of the implicit rules of theater is that we believe that it's not real and the <laughs> the kind of not so secret secret is that it, it is it's very real <laughs> yeah it's interesting that it's something i do think about i mean there are it I, I was into theater in, in high school and I, I think it was always hard for me to like play a role to like, especially if I wasn't able to feel into it, like, Oh, I have to play like the soldier. I have to play, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. And my, my sort of way into theater has always been more through like the, I guess like the more like clowning traditions where you're sort of like taking whatever's there is what you're like acting out. You don't have to like try to get somewhere else. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, is, is there anything that we haven't addressed or, or spoken about today about you or your work that you would like to bring into the conversation now? Yeah, I think there there is there is one thing that, I, that I'd like to bring. It's something that myself and others at DPI have been thinking about in the past well, few years. And I think it's this question of who who can play, <laughs> who who gets to play. And what, what are your blocks to being able to play? And this, I think it's a really, it's sort of a way of, of bringing in oppression, 
and sort of the way that certain groups or practices or identities are marginalized. Because I, you know, I think that, yeah, there's, you know, one, one example could be like a sort of wildness, this idea of let's like connect with wildness, right? And I think like, you know, as a, a black or a brown body person in this country, at least being wild could, you know, cost you your life. So there's, there's a whole culture and history of, you know, not being able to be wild. And so I think this is a big learning edge for myself that I want to really deepen in is being able to see, yeah, my own sort of blindnesses to where others aren't able to play. Or even I would say another way of putting this like methods of playing, ways of playing, ways of deepening that are actually easier for some and not as easy for me. I mean, there's certain cultures where actually it's, very fine to just be in a conflict, like really heated, yeah. a lot of intense conflicts that are like full of like things messy and thrown about. And it's like, whoa. And that for that person it might be play playful. And for me, I was like, Ugh, you know, uh-huh. and to just have an awareness of that and to deepen the a sort of awareness and understanding again of what are the ways that some people play that are hard for me and what are the ways that I might play that are hard for others. And to like open those conversations, I think are are incredibly important. Mm-hmm. Well, I am I'm with you on that, and those are it's it's courageous to be able to look at those. So I applaud that. And I have just a couple more questions for you, Aaron. Yeah. What is an everyday, an ordinary everyday moment that brings you great joy? Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> I have a I have a morning tea practice and I have tea on my porch every morning. I wake up and have this uh, green tea, uh, Japanese sencha on my porch, the slice of toast, <laughs> and always always brings me joy. To just look at the sun sun rising and drinking tea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What is something that folks would be surprised to learn about you? Hmm. That's a hard question. I have to like, yeah, I'm like thinking about the way that people sort of would identify me like from this podcast or other sort of presences online. Yeah, I think, I think when I talk about my past, people are typical are, are, are somewhat surprised about it to sort of, yeah, I, I would say that sort of, who I was as a child as someone who was not really much, much, let's say like messier and um, sort of bombastic and kind of not contained to just have this image of, you know, the, the little Aaron is one who is like always sent to the principal's office for banging on his desk or not being able to control himself. I think, I think, my closest friends sort of see that and like, oh yeah, they're sort of able to make that connection. But it, it it's interesting. I think you know, I've it's it's it can be seen as something that's very different from how I am now. Mm-hmm. And I think it's it's I've been thinking about this in the past few months. You know, when when I was a small child and I got that diagnosis of of ADHD, it was said to me, this this is going to be with you for life. You know, you will always have this thing. And I was so like, no, what do you mean? Like maybe. And they won't have it. They're like, you can, you might be able to cope with it, but you're always, you're, it's always going to be with you. And it's just like, ah, oh, the like, 
I, I very much have, have problems with the whole DSM di- diagnostic statistical manual and diagnoses and pathologies for, for, you know, that's, that's my, my, my history of why I have a problem with it. But I just think that, I mean, these can be helpful for some, but the, they're sort of totalizing way of, 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 of holding this frame upon, you know, a small child or really anyone can also be very destructive. Yeah. Well, we, we've spoken about maybe different, a couple of different places that people can connect with you. But before my final question, where would you invite folks to connect with you and your work? Oh, thank you for that. Yeah. So the Deep Play Institute is a great way to, to connect with me. Uh, you can just search the Deep Play Institute. I'm pretty sure it'll come up. I also did publish a book recently about play, which you also can find on I think my website, uh, my artist website, which is finblooming.com. Mm-hmm. And it's a book called Cosmologia Ludica, which means ludic cosmology, which is a way of just, yeah, viewing play as this cosmic force that is something we can sort of play to and try, sorry, pray to <laughs> and try to manifest you know, in, in one's life. Beautiful. I'll, I'll, I'll link to that in the show notes i'll link to anywhere that folks can connect with you in the show notes and and any books and resources that we mentioned as well and uh, the final question that i ask the podcast is called mike's search for meaning and i'm i'm very i'm eager to hear what does it mean to aaron to live a meaningful life <laughs> mm. yeah I'm, i i love your framing of it Again, it makes me think of Nietzsche. I was writing to Nietzsche in my twenties, and you know what? What's the sort of resistance to universe? His his resistance to universalizing things. So yes, what is what is my search for meaning? What is what is meaningful for me? Yeah, I think it it comes back to that that moment when I was trying to tap into the dogmatist, <laughs> how I would be dogmatic. I think for me, what's meaningful is growing and learning and helping others to grow and learn is really what's so meaningful for me. And that, you know, that growth and that learning is, yeah, it's not just like learning textbook knowledge or information. It's, it's growing as, as a human finding one's own, not just purpose, but one's own like unique expression finding one's finding new and, and helpful and dynamic ways of connecting to with, with one's loved ones and community and, understanding one's place not just in oneself but in the world and with others yeah that path myself being on that path and helping others on that path i think is is the meaning of my life Mm -hmm. well that's a a great way to end the conversation and i applaud you and and thank you for all the ways that you're continuing to show up for for your version of a meaningful life for continuing to focus on your own growth and your own learning and for creating these kind of playgrounds to experiment in growth and learning with other people as well. And healing is, is something that carries great level of import for me and, and it does for you too. And I appreciate the lens that you have of all the people that I've spoken to, whether it's on this podcast or otherwise, I don't think that I have spoken to someone who is really looking at it in, in such a, a wide 360 degree such such a multifaceted view and i know that you're kind of trying on what would be great about dogma but one of the things i'm appreciating in this moment about you is that you're not really married to any one 
diagnostic or one way of doing mm. things that you're you're pulling from lots of different areas and seeing well, how how does this fit given the way that I see the world and uh, and it's totally. a very admirable quality. Thank you. Can I say one one last thing on that? Yes, um, you can. Yeah, it, it really. I, I've been plugging Nietzsche more than I thought I would. Um, <laughs> I, I have to end with a plug to Nietzsche. So Nietzsche's whole thing is this like perspectivism, which I think, and it's kind of like the way we can become individuals. As someone who's, I teach philosophy as well, and so a lot of my students. I find, you know, I, I like to raise up this sort of question of like, how do you know that, you know, all of the all the values that you have within you are just fed to you by society or just force fed to you? Like, you know, are you really yourself? Are you really your own individual? Like, how, how can you know? And, uh, you know, I usually don't like to provide the answer, but I do think there is an answer. <laughs> the, the answer is to try different things. Like it, it's only from Nietzsche's thing was like, sickness and health right from stepping into like what is sickly and stepping into what is healthy only from those two contrasting perspectives do we get this like perspective that can take both into an account so and i do think that by stepping into different experiences different practices different systems different ways of being different modalities one can begin to carve out one's own unique sort of way through through that it's only it's only through that it's only through that kind of perspectiveness of stepping into the multitude the multiplicity of perspectives that one can sort of become an individual beautiful well yeah cheers to experimentation and to experiencing and to all the listeners whenever you're listening i hope that you have a wonderful rest of your day or evening take good care and lots of love. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to Mike's search for meaning. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode with your friends and leave a review. I look forward to seeing you next time, my friends. And until then, stay safe, stay well and keep living with purpose. Peace.